Coming up on Let's Clear the Air. I'd really like to see a, you know, a sober, level-headed um, understanding of energy and energy policy and really energy security at the core and understanding how that works because, um, and, and that is inclusive of economic security and national security. Welcome to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast. Conversations focused on how some of the world's top energy leaders are innovating to deliver clean, affordable, and reliable energy for the future. Your hosts are energy and climate expert, Dr. Andrew Parker, and midstream industry veteran, Adam Murray. Now, here are Andrew and Adam. Welcome to the Let's Clear the Air podcast. I'm Andrew Parker alongside Adam Murray. Thanks for joining us today. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Trisha Curtis of Petra Nerds about the uh, economic and geopolitical implications of uh, the oil and gas industry and how some of the regulatory and investing pressures are impacting the industry today. Trisha is globally recognized for her knowledge in the U.S. oil and gas markets and often presents to uh, many of the world's energy decision makers. Uh, she's also the host of a wildly popular podcast, uh, Petro Nerds, which I listen to myself. I uh, hope we can live up to, to her high quality uh, podcast here. Trisha, it's great to have you. Welcome to Let's Clear the Air. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. All right, Trisha, let's clear the air. Uh, you do a lot of uh, you do a lot of uh, social media engagement, and, and we asked Robert Bryce this question. I'm going to ask you the same thing. Twitter or LinkedIn? What's your preferred platform for getting your content out there for consumption? Uh, you know, really for me, it's it's I, I have a bone to pick with both on on multiple occasions, but it's LinkedIn for a wider mass audience. Um, I will say Twitter seems something seems to have shifted recently because they you can post something and it might get 60 views and before it might've got 800. Um, so there's definitely some weird stuff going on with Twitter. I don't see nearly as much sort of activity or hear about it from like the EFT, the energy finance Twitter community. Um, it just doesn't seem like there's as much stuff going on Twitter. Um, you can still, it's, I, I think somebody, uh, a podcast guest of mine asked a question last week to me about, or a couple weeks ago on Daniel Seaver asked me about Twitter and how much information I get from it. And I say, you know, it's it's actually not a bad resource if you're like searching things, um, but it's it's mainly to say here's the headline and then you go chase up the primary source. So um, I'd say right now LinkedIn's better, and still it's it's very um, it's interesting. I mean, you post a video or a piece of content, and you can really tell short form short videos under two minutes really work really well, and then the you know sort of bullet point content so people can easily digest a ton of information very quickly, and that does uh, it does seem to resonate with folks a lot. Totally agree. I think I like the fact that it's not anonymous uh, with LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, sort of focus that direction. However, I do also agree Twitter uh, is the fastest news source in the world. I mean, you get breaking news uh, instantaneously, depending upon what you're looking for. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. I feel like I need to get Twitter. I'm, I feel like I'm a total social media dinosaur by not having Twitter. And I've resisted up to this point. And uh, I, but I feel like I, I'm going to have to give in at some point. It has its places where it can be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Trisha, before we get into talking about, you, you know, the future of energy and where we think we're going, uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what's behind the Petro Nerds uh, and the Petro Nerds podcast? 
Yeah. I mean, Petronards is, I mean, so the, the name of the podcast is the name of my business. Um, so my consulting and advising firm, I mean, I largely do, you know, strategic risk analysis, um, but I specialize, as you mentioned, in everything from U.S. shale to, uh, to China um, and everything sort of in between. So global macro to, you know, very in the minutia micro and how that, you know, impacts individual operators. Um, I you know, spend a lot of time on individual operator behavior, you know, what's going on in the weeds all the way up to the bigger macro level and really help uh, help companies in and outside the oil and gas industry understand and synthesize the information. Most businesses, doesn't matter if you're in oil and gas, energy impacts you to some degree, understanding the, the market, understanding the economy. Um, they're all very, very interwoven. Um, and so understanding geopolitics, understanding the macro economy and understanding day-to-day business, um, you know, and, and helping folks understand what, what matters for their business and what doesn't, what's noise and what's important. Uh, that's what I do on a day-to-day. Um, and the podcast is really, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very passionate about, about, I'm, I, I am very passionate about oil and gas. I am third generation oil and gas. My, my grandfather pumped oil wells in Wyoming. My dad pumped oil wells in Wyoming. And, um, and I'm extremely fortunate to be, you know, having a business called Petronerds. Um, and I am very passionate about the business. I obviously I do it, you know, way more than just oil and gas. Um, but I, I love it. Um, and it's an, it's a fantastic business. And so the podcast is, is really sort of a template for me to be able to talk to folks, talk to folks like you guys in similar platforms as this, um, and really just have deeper discussions and let, Folks listen to what uh, industry leaders think about the market, and I think um, you know there's there's so much going on in the world, and I always say that, but it's it's really important to try to have your finger you know on the pulse of, of things going on so that you can make good decisions and and see opportunity where others you know maybe see um, not see it. So in a nutshell, yeah. I, I care a lot, and I um, and I'm deeply passionate, and I, I tend to talk too much. So you know, a podcast is a perfect platform for that. <laughs> Love it. So set the stage. Uh, with the market, and I'm gonna I'm gonna date stamp this because we'll probably not put this episode out for a few weeks because we've got a few others that are set to come out. But it's it's May 11th uh, when we're recording this, and the price of oil has been highly volatile the last few weeks. And so, do your best to kind of set the stage of what is going on with the energy markets right now? Um, you know, I'd say, so it's May 11th and we're off to, so if you look back over the course of this year, we've had incredible volatility. Um, so we've really lost a lot of the gains for crude oil prices from 2022. We've really lost a lot of that in 2023. That was to be expected. Um, I mean, if you've listened to the Petros podcast or you've you know, I've had a lot of pushback on that, but all of last year was sort of calling for prices to come down just because the nothing in the global economy um, was was sort of pushing this to go any higher. There's on the demand side. So we've seen those prices come off at the end of last year. Um, we saw way too much overhype in trading at the beginning of the war in Ukraine. And then we saw there slowly saw this come off as the as the global economy was hitting. And then this year has really been punctuated by um, the the Bank, the ongoing banking crisis that just keeps bubbling up and then calming down and bubbling up. And and what everyone's sort of looking for is this big catalyst that's that's, that's going to be like a Lehman Brothers moment that takes the market down and, and we sort of solve all the problems. We, we have a big problem, we solve it, and the market corrects. And the problem is no crisis is like the one before, and we haven't had these one one thing. So they keep trying to solve these crises. And the banking stuff has really had a, it had a pretty big impact on oil because folks are trading it. And um, so I would say, and I tell folks this, that oil prices have been a better reflector of the 
actual economy in terms of how people are viewing what the economy is going to do, how people are viewing the market than probably any single indicator out there um, because people are trading it into the future, looking at the future. So oil prices are probably not really reflecting today's supply and demand um, perfectly. I mean, they never do, but because the, the contracted volumes for Brent and WTI are, are out of whack right now, but we did we have seen a narrowing of the spread between Brent and WTI. I mean, but when you go from one week seeing 69 and change to the next week seeing 73 bucks back to 70, I mean, we, we've had some pretty, these $5 swings are pretty big. Um, and so in March, in St. Patrick's Day, you saw 69 bucks or 68 bucks, and then you, we've recovered, we had the OPEC plus cuts, and then we have we just continue to see volatility since then, and prices have come off um, because obviously the OPEC plus cuts were yes the market probably overreacted a little to that. They said it's two million barrels a day of cuts. Um, they're starting to implement some of those cuts now, um, but Russia's producing a lot of crude oil, and that there's you know ample crude oil on the market. And the, really, it's the global economy. I mean, the we're not seeing you know robust increases in demand levels in the U.S., and we're not seeing uh, China's the Chinese holiday that they just had was uh, very consumer driven. So yeah, they had lots of services and people bought ice cream and people went out to the movies, but that doesn't necessarily move the needle on your, on your oil demand. You need to be building stuff. You need to be demanding stuff. You need trucks moving and traffic and diesel um, to really move the needle on oil demand. So I think what this year has told us in the volatility in oil prices is that oil demand, the strength in oil demand is just not there. How, how are how are decarbonization strategies and, and alternative energy commitments impacting the markets? You know, with all the obviously there's a lot of attention being played right now to, you know, decarbonization and, and everyone's making various commitments, both at the corporate level, but also, you know, the regulatory level. And so how how is that conversation playing into some of the demand factors that you're talking about? Um, it's definitely it's definitely playing into it from a perspective, uh, uh, from how the market's trading, probably how the market's pricing. It's certainly impacting share price performance of companies uh, that are producing hydrocarbons of oil and gas companies. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the day-to-day -day supply and demand, in terms of the day-to-day -day crude oil price, I don't think it's quite there. I think the lack of love for oil and gas and these decarbonization efforts and the view of where oil and gas will be 10 years from now is definitely impacting the contracted volumes today for, for an index like WTI for Texas Intermediate. Um, and you not so much Brent, but it is definitely WTI. Um, but it's not on a day-to-day -day minutia of trading. That's not what's moving it. So the decarbonization efforts and the um and the role that you know the, the talk about emissions and everything and the sort of ESG movement and the investor pressure, that's definitely impacting share price performance um, for, for operators. But that the overall sentiment and the lack of love for oil and gas. It does weigh to a degree because it's impacting the general investor, the retail investor, the average folk person that's that's thinking, do I want to have you know oil gas companies in my portfolio? And they probably don't because there's just so much negative sentiment around it. That also impacts the the entities that actually trade oil and gas. And that in turn, when you have thinner contracted volumes, you have big, bigger exacerbated swings with algorithmic trading, with computer trading on on headlines. Um, and so it does weigh into it. You bring up some really good points there. I mean, as far as a general view on the industry, um, you know, what do you, what do you, what is your take on the energy company's commitment uh, to making an impact on the environment or reducing their emissions? And is that having a play on their stock prices uh, positively or negatively? You know, I think it's, it's, 
it's a pretty complicated, you know, in some ways it's complicated, in some ways it's not. And I'm a, a very honest person. So I'll be pretty forthright in saying, I think the industry has not done itself any favors in demonizing the oil and gas industry. And they're doing that through, you know, the, the talk of emissions and decarbonization and the net zero 2050 plans. That mm -hmm. being said, you know, I was in Midland and I did go visit an operator and their field and, you know, went to their field locations and saw, you know, the difference between the newer stuff and the older stuff, especially from a tank battery perspective. And so I don't, I'm not, you know, hampering on the industry and saying you're bad for trying to reduce your methane emissions, but yeah. by no means and doing the right thing is great. But I think it gets, there's a lot of things that get involved in that. And I'm not sure every single person in the field working for these companies that are killing themselves on reducing the emissions understands that net zero 2050, you know, that might be a slogan that most, most almost every public com oil company has tacked on to, you know, or, or said, we're working on net zero emissions. That's scope one and scope two emissions. That's not end your user emissions scope three, which is what the bigger investors want, right? The activist mm -hmm. investors want. And so the average guy in the field, I'm not sure they appreciate the net zero 2050, according to the International Energy Agency in the UN, that's that's a demand drop of 25 million barrels of crude oil by 2030. So that's a that's 25% of demand drop from today to in a handful of years, which right. is devastating for the business and would put most people out of business. So I think, and that is impacting share price performance. That is preventing, you know, these oil companies no longer have a story to tell and they stop telling the story. They're, they get up on on in every earnings call and they're telling the street what they're doing on emissions, but they're not telling them what they're doing in terms of oil and gas production and why their product is going to be needed for a long time. And that's, it, it's maybe uncomfortable for people to hear, but it is a reality. And that is why they're buying back their shares, but clearly that's not working or otherwise they wouldn't be buying back their shares. So they need to be telling the street the story for why they're going to be here for the long haul. And the decarbonization story is, is at odds with that. So I also, the other thing I'm really, increasingly concerned about on the decarbonization side is that, you know, all these reductions of methane reductions, um, it's it's pretty easy to do with new production, right? You you have new tank batteries, you have everything's new. So it, it's not hard to reduce these methanes, uh, reduce methane emissions upfront. However, the older production, they swapping out tank batteries and doing things, I think there's probably from a technological perspective, I'm not sure we push the envelope all the way to say, you know, what can we do with older stuff? Do we have to completely remove a tank battery? But that being said, is that there's some there's costs to that. So what operators yeah. tend to look at that and just say, hey, we'll just shut in those wells. Well, we need to be very, very cautious about that because if every operator decides to shut in a bunch of stripper well production, cumulatively yeah. these numbers are going to add up. And you know, when you ask operators, and I've been increasingly doing this about everybody in the industry, there's a big group think in the industry that's very bullish on oil prices. That's bullish from a macro perspective, but there's not a lot of demand bulls to support mm -hmm. that. So you can't be bullish on oil prices and then tell me you're shutting in oil and gas production because of methane emissions, because you just told me that you needed more oil and gas production because we're going to demand it later. So right. I think it's really important and collectively, this can really add up. This can be a couple hundred thousand, you know, this could be a thousand barrels a day for one operator, 500 barrels a day for another operator. But collectively in the U.S., when we total up all these these old production stripper wells account for a lot of production in the U.S., we could really start impacting energy security and production levels. And that is it's really, really important. And, you know, if we can, if we can incentivize operators to um, on CO2 emissions and, you know, all the, all the regulations and all the stuff that, that on, on carbon capture, if we can put tax incentives on that and tax breaks on that and, and subsidize wind and solar to death, even though they're poor forms of energy, I don't understand why we can't actually incentivize operators to, to clean up the methane emissions in the old production and subsidize that and put new tank batteries out there as well so that we don't lose that production. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think um, 
I know the Inflation Reduction Act has new technology kind of stipulations in it. Do you think uh, that that might end up turning into a little bit of advantage for what you're talking about? Or do you know about the IRA details? I'm not sure if I do. So I, I do not think the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be very beneficial to anyone. Um, I'm, I'm pretty against it just because it is massively inflationary and not disinflationary because it's mm. a huge form of spending. And there's hundreds of billions of dollars that's going to decarbonization efforts without really a, lot, a roadmap to do so. So what will end up happening is um, they want it to be made in America, um, but you can't make, you don't make windmills in America, you don't make batteries in America, and you don't make solar panels in America. So what you'll do is we're, we're buying all of those from China, and then we're just going to build charging stations, which we're spending a lot of money on too, so we can plug in these EVs, and we're going to try to push as many EVs into the system. So it'll put yeah. a lot of stress on the grid. You'd have to, you would have to redo our entire permitting structure to actually get any of those renewables into the grid. So it's a pretty poor bill. A lot of businesses signed on to it because it did offer tax breaks and stuff for different yeah. decarbonization efforts, carbon sequestration. There's not a lot. The devil's in the details and how you actually pull that apart. There yeah. is a little bit. I mean, there's I think I believe there's incentives on plugging and abandoning wells and things like that. And and um, I'm not sure how much is on geothermal. I know the geothermal stuff is getting really hairy because it's definitely there's definitely a long term opportunity in geothermal, especially with oil and gas. But there's a movement against geothermal now because it evolves in oil and gas and people are against oil and gas. So they don't want geothermal to take off because that would enable oil and gas operators to continue surviving and and drilling complete and so it's it's a um it very similar to sort of like the anti-nuclear uh sort of movement so um i i the the ira is kind of a podcast in and of itself i don't think um i truthfully do not think it's going to be nearly as beneficial as anyone thinks i think it's going to be extremely harmful and right now it is literally kind of uh it is a piece of the hostage and hostilities that we're talking about with regards to the debt ceiling between um you know between the senate and house and and we're, we're really between mccarthy and biden right now um the ira is something that if you listen to um the talks in the last couple of days that's something that gets brought up in terms of um that being held hostage so it's a it's a huge chunk hundreds of billions of dollars with the spending um toward climate policies that uh without a, a clear roadmap and it's going to be very very messy trisha we'll be back in one moment to continue this great conversation This podcast is brought to you by Let's Clear the Air, a public education campaign of GPA Midstream Association and GPSA Midstream Suppliers. The midstream industry helps power the lives of 330 million Americans by working around the clock to provide reliable energy, counteract climate change, and strengthen our country's economy. Let's Clear the Air is about promoting a constructive dialogue on the future of energy. Learn more and join the conversation at letscleartheairnow.org. Now, back to Andrew and Adam. So, Tricia, you, you've spent time in D.C. Um, you, you're probably fairly familiar with, with policymaking. What do you think the role should be of government in this conversation, right? Because, like, the regulatory piece is very muff, muddled and... Um, you know, there's a lot of people have a lot of different interests and, and perspectives. And so I'm really curious what you think the role of government should be in this conversation and, and uh, you know, how maybe the, the midstream industry should continue to be, a, you know, kind of at the table and, and what we could do, do better uh, to, to speak up and advocate for the industry. And I know it's, it's a great question and, it, and it's, and it is tricky because I think, um, 
you know, we don't, we have a very unique, very, very unique climate in, in Washington right now, especially for oil and gas. And I, I think it's, a, it's really, really important for the person, the average person who, you know, is not in the oil and gas industry, um, who is against the oil and gas industry to truly understand that, you know, you didn't have to, we didn't have this sort of partisan politics in any previous administration with regards to being oil and gas. You could have certain views on politics and, and be pro oil and gas. It didn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. We don't really have that now. And so in Washington, you have a very hostile environment toward oil and gas. And that's why it gets really tricky when everyone says, well, we need to seat at the table. We need to be part of this. But there's nobody in Washington that's really, you know, sort of trying to propel the, the folks. There are definitely industry advocates, but nobody within the administration trying to propel the industry to enable the industry in any way, shape or form. Um, so I think and there's no education that most people within the administration have zero understanding of how hydrocarbons work. And I think that gets really tricky in terms of, you know, entities saying, how do you advocate and how do you get a seat at the table and how do you get your words in? You know, I, you can read the G7 communique on energy and um, really that's kind of case in point of how hard, you know, those communication documents take years to produce. And mm -hmm. that G7 communique on energy was, that's Japan, you know, was a big part of that. Obviously, this took place in Japan. And we were a big part of the of the this administration pushing back and not allowing, you know, for really clear rhetoric to say we need to invest in natural gas. The fact that you can't even say clearly you have to invest in natural gas that it said natural gas may be appropriate to invest in it is ridiculous. Um, and so we we have a G7 documents coming out that's saying not clearly saying we need global investment in natural gas. That's pretty hard for the market to get aligned on that. So I think that's something that folks, you know, for like GPA or API, and I say this for COGA and others of, you know, I, I think we've, this industry has a history and I'm third generation, so I understand it well. And I, I have lived and spent time in DC and worked for a nonprofit is that this industry tends to, you know, duck and cover on major issues. And then they don't, um, and then this is the one issue on the energy transition where they're just leaning in and thinking that this is going to be their savior. And it's not. Um, and we can see that both in share price performance, but actually in, in the love from the administration, which is zero, that it's not helping. So I think um, the, the big thing on the stuff that came out of from the EPA you know, it's a really damning, if, if any of that was to pass, it's extremely damning because those are really stringent standards um, on, on, on vehicles, basically for the intention of forcing electric vehicles into the system. And as I said before, you, you know, we don't have the grid for, to, for everybody to charge their electric vehicles now. Um, it would fall apart. So, you know, but it would also bankrupt the refining sector. And it would that would hurt the entire global economy, that would hurt our economy, everything, and it would really distort oil and gas prices. And so that's a mess. Um, and so it, there's huge, huge consequences when you try to force something in. And that's the problem is that when you force something and you don't have engineers and, and, and economists and folks who know what they're doing to actually make these policies, these are policymakers. These are not PhDs. They're not experts in anything. These are just folks who, who care about, you know, are, about their base and getting elected. And so they're putting a lot of crap through and the EPA stuff. Um, it has pushed it really far. So if it, that that one has huge implications in terms of the auto side, in terms of forcing basically the industry, not, I don't say the only gas industry, but forcing the industrial complex in the U.S. to move away from from um, for vehicles that use um, oil, the vehicles that use gasoline and diesel. And that's a really big problem in terms of the actual, you know, making, implementing that in terms of the actual grid structure. So you know, my advice to entities like, you know, GPA and API, and I know folks in DC have, you know, oil and gas industry entities and advocacy groups have struggled with this. You know, I, I always come back to it, but I do think education is really key. So I think people need to understand what they're talking about 
and be really armed to the teeth with facts in terms of, you know, what are we talking about? What does this matter? And really understanding what are you trying to accomplish? Um, because uh, what, what we tend to see right now is everyone, everyone in the industry leaned in really hard on this energy transition stuff and didn't quite understand what that even was. And I don't think a lot of folks still do um, of what that means. And then trying to understand, you know, are we trying to reduce methane emissions? And, and that makes sense because a lot of folks are actually, you make money by reducing those emissions because you're capturing this gas. But are we trying to reduce methane emissions or we're trying to put the industry out of business? And there's a big difference. Um, and so you have to be, you know, combing through the board calls of, of Exxon and really hearing the activist investors and what they're calling for, which is, you know, scope through emissions. And then hearing those, the companies say, oh, no, we don't, we don't want scope through emissions. We'll do scope one, scope two. And so it gets really, it gets really dicey and really hairy. So I think in DC, there's, as in any policy, doesn't matter if you're oil and gas or anything, there's a lack of deep understanding of how the business works. And, um, and, you know, it's, everything's pretty high level. So these entities need to be understanding who their businesses are, what their needs are, and how they're probably advocating for them. And they need to be honest. And I think we've lost a lot of honesty in the oil and gas space lately in terms of how we talk about the business and, and being honest about this is what our, these are who, who we're dealing with and here's what we need to move forward, and, even yeah. if that's uncomfortable. And real quick, I know Adam has a follow-up question, but just your comment about, you know, education. I mean, that's the beauty of this podcast and, you know, Absolutely. the GP, GPA's leadership, right? The Let's Clear the Air campaign, uh, letscleartheairnow.org. Uh, for folks who are listening that haven't visited the website is is really a purpose-built targeted effort to provide that content to people, not just within the industry, but beyond the industry to say, you know, address misconceptions, highlight everything that's being done and trying to increase that educational awareness that you were you were just saying which is why you know this this podcast was born again out of creating content creating media creating education for folks and and trying to advocate and educate for that better energy future from the industry perspective sorry adam i i know you want to jump in there no you're you're good um you know you there's a lot to unwrap there. So I, my question is, you know, what specific outcomes do you hope to see regarding investments um, and policy in both new energy sources, but also, you know, within oil and gas? It's, it's a, it's a tightrope we're walking, right? But what, what would you like to see as far as outcome or path forward kind of stuff? Well, so I'd really like to see a, you know, a sober level-headed um, understanding of energy and energy policy yeah. um, from the ground level up. So, and really energy security at the core and understanding how that works because, um, and, and that is inclusive of economic security and national security and understanding that, you know, the U.S. is the largest producer of oil and gas in the world by a huge margin. And so that means that there's massive geopolitical leverage there. And so if the goal is to decarbonize, then the world and ourselves and CO2 emissions do not have borders, then you would actually try to push as much U.S. natural gas into the global economy as possible to decarbonize and 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 reduce coal consumption in Asia. Um, so there has to be a first a level-headed understanding of how uh, just the what we're trying to accomplish. And I don't think we have any of that. I don't think the policies on CO2 emissions are accomplishing anything. And really, the oil and gas sector does have to be cognizant of how much they're actually on the upstream, on scope one and scope two emissions, what's the total emissions? If everyone reduced their emissions to zero, how much are they actually contributing to the global CO2 emissions? Because it's a drop in the damn bucket compared to what is going on within Asia, specifically China. Well, so that, I think 
that's yeah. that's a it's a huge it's a huge understanding and that's where i think um it's not that i want to see the industry ducking covering and saying oh this isn't a big deal it's that you know you can you, we you don't other people work really really hard on all the green policies and and climate change and everything but nobody is working on energy security and understanding that we have to be producing oil and gas. And so the, and you want to be enabling countries that have rule of law, like the U S like Canada, like Norway, like the UK to do this. And, and we've sort of lost Europe in all of this. And we also have the backdrop of an ongoing war and geopolitical crises and, and, and a looming war within the Taiwan Straits. And this is becoming, you know, energy is critical to all of this. Um, and so, and it's not just energy and producing oil and gas, it's, it's powering your, you know, it's having power through your power lines and having dependable energy resources. Sources. So I would like to see the oil and gas industry um, uh, be, I would like to see uh, policymakers have a sober, more sober understanding and understanding that no energy is free, whether it's whether it's nuclear, whether it's wind, whether it's solar, no energy is free, it requires energy to make it. Um, and there's a cost to that. And I would like the industry to have a better understanding of how they actually make their money and talking about is that they make their money from producing oil and gas. So we need to stop demonizing oil and gas production. Mm -hmm. Do you think the global situations are even considered at a national level. I mean, we talk about the emissions from China. We talk about the emissions from a growing India. We talk about, um, you know, the war and things that are going on. I mean, yet we continually, you know, discuss less energy for the United States. Um, you know, what are you hearing in your circles that, is anyone thinking globally? Um, so they're not. I mean, that's why I think, you know, I'm along with Chris Wright on this is that it's really not about CO2 emissions, because if it was, then we'd be trying to lower CO2 emissions and we're clearly not. So, you know, it, it's not it's not appropriate for Colorado to kill themselves on CO2 emissions and and put people out of business and reduce coal-fired power generation and reduce energy security when Colorado is 0.3% of global CO2 emissions. It's not appropriate for the U.S. to murder their economy and reduce our energy security and economic security and national security when the emissions continue to rise out of China. And the problem is that when we elevate uh, the biggest single priority in the world to, C to CO2 emissions, we have a huge issue with every with with uh, war and energy economic security yeah. that follows second place. And so, no, I don't I don't think this is about CO2 emissions. And you have to realize how easily it is to throw everything in the kitchen sink under something. It's such an umbrella policy um, that, you know, you can it's such an umbrella issue that you can throw everything in it. And there's a lot of spending you can put toward it. A lot of people are getting rich from this. Um, a lot of businesses are getting rich. And it, so it's it, it's an everything policy. You can you can put a ton of spending and you can put a lot of stuff behind it um and it doesn't have it just doesn't have a lot of teeth because it doesn't um it, it isn't realistic in terms of energy is energy density it's a btu content and you know that's why propane when we turn that on, fire on when we're sitting outside and having a beer at a restaurant we feel that heat and it's awesome because it's energy dense we don't and we sit outside in the sun on a hot day and we get that we don't necessarily get that i mean that conversion factor is huge and um this is not about you know if this was about energy um, and and not and CO2 emissions, we would be having a different, if this was about reducing CO2 emissions, we would be actively reducing CO2 emissions, including carbon capture. And um, we don't see carbon capture nearly as much in the um, in the conversations because that carbon capture, as Al Gore said a couple of years ago, carbon capture allows um, those guys to keep poking holes in the ground and keep drilling. And so a lot of this has to do with an anti-oil and gas movement and people need to be very cognizant of that in the context of energy security.
whether you like oil and gas or not. Well, there's so much to unwrap here. I want to uh, encourage everyone to go to uh, Petra Nerds, uh, look up Trisha Curtis. Um, all of her podcasts are, are online. Uh, Trisha is active on LinkedIn. Um, thank you for joining. We usually wrap up uh, our conversation as we're, as we're just over 30 minutes now um, with a, with a forward looking question. So it's three years from now, you're back on this podcast and you're happy. What has changed in the energy world that has put a smile on your face? That's a great question. Um, and a little bit, I feel bad because I feel like people think I'm not happy. I'm, I'm a happy person in general. I tend to be, uh, have un unfortunately honest perspectives of the market and um, <laughs> I will need to hear them. But no, I, I'm, I think that's it's a really good question of what I would be happy about. I would be very happy about what I said before about sober energy policies that there is a, um, there is a, a bipartisanship in, in, in a bipartisan understanding of energy and that the U.S. is comfortable um, producing oil and gas and that we have uh, folks in Washington that are saying, you know, we need you. We're, we're refilling that we have refilled the strategic petroleum reserve um, that we're uh, we're actively producing oil and gas. We're, we're, we're removing red tape. Um, we're, and we, I would be extremely happy if we have built a pipeline or, or, or working on building a pipeline, approved Keystone XL. Um, so that would be great. And, and in addition to that, that would just be a, a more a realistic understanding that um, we this benefits not uh, not just us, but our allies in the global economy. Um, and this is necessary. Um, so I think I'm not saying I mean, I, I expect that that the energy transition rhetoric goes out the window by any means, but I yeah. would be very happy if there was a sober understanding of how energy actually works and that um, there was a much greater, bigger campaign on education in terms of how this works and that there was a sort of a reality check. So unlike a lot of folks, I am not, um, I think a lot of folks in the industry, you'll hear them online or offline say that, you know, if we have a, you know, if we have a really harsh winter or, you know, when, when this gets really bad, folks will realize that they need oil and gas production. And I don't think that's the way to go. I think that uh, I'd rather not have a harsh winter and I'd rather not have these bad things happen. And I would like to folks to, you know, to enable an understanding how energy powers their lives. Um, and that would be, you know, a little more bipartisanship on, on energy would make me extremely happy. And a, a pipeline would make me very, very happy. <laughs> That's a great last point. Great. We've been so fortunate to kick this podcast off with some pretty phenomenal uh, thinkers and uh, getting to have you on. Trish has been awesome. And I think our listeners are going to, appreciate everything that you've had to say. Right. And, uh, I know for me, the first time I, I met you a few months ago, the, the open honesty on some of these topics was, uh, refreshing. Right. And, uh, so appreciate your, your honesty here and, uh, your viewpoint on the topic. And, uh, I have a feeling we'll probably have you back on before three years. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, we, we appreciate everything, uh, you do for the industry and on behalf of the industry. And um, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure and an honor, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Trisha. Thanks, Trisha. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode of Let's Clear the Air. Andrew, anything that you take away from our conversation with Trisha? Yeah, a whole bunch. She's She's full of a ton of great statistics and, and knowledge. Um, one of the things that 
she mentioned, and, and look, it's hard to have talk about this without getting political, right? Because there, there are geopolitical implications when it comes to, you know, the energy transition conversation and, and what it, what it all means for the country. And, and, you know, she talks a lot about, you know, um, the geopolitical leverage being the largest producer of oil and natural gas in the world. And um, I think that's an underappreciated uh, position that uh, not enough people value enough and, and try to leverage enough when it comes to, to how the industry positions itself in this conversation. Um, when you, you look at everything going around us in the world right now, I think it's a, it's an often overlooked part of the equation. Adam, what about yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't wait to go back and listen to this podcast myself. Um, you know, we covered a lot in a short period of time, and uh, just a wealth of knowledge is is all I have to say. I mean, I hope, I hope everyone at least takes a few nuggets out of this conversation, and uh, you know, continues on their path to enlightenment in the energy industry. And thanks for listening. We'll we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast with Adam Murray and Dr. Andrew Parker. If you like what you have heard, subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. You can email us with questions or comments to Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast at gmail.com.